Hello and welcome to Minimalist Buddha Podcast, where you learn to systematically declutter your mind, your life, and your personal living space. I'm Sensei, your host, and I want to welcome you from wherever you're listening in the world. I also want to say thank you to all of my students, my clients, my followers, and supporters. Without your support, my work would not be possible. I'm excited about today's episode, and with no further ado, let's get right to it. And so we begin. Today, we explore a question that goes to the heart of this podcast. And the question has to do with whether the Buddha was a minimalist. Now, I think this is an interesting question to explore. Because upon first glance, depending upon one's understanding of both minimalism and Buddhism, a knee-jerk response would likely produce an answer that is not entirely accurate. So what we're going to do is do a deeper dive into this question with the purpose of discovering some jewels for our own practice and increasing our own knowledge. I want to caution people when they ask questions like the one we're raising And so I'm going to tread lightly as well. I know that it is in vogue these days to try to kind of stitch together a number of different ideologies, historical figures, information in such a way that one might be able to call it their own or claim to have created something new. And this is particularly not appropriate, I would say, with historical figures. And here we're talking about the Buddha. People do it with many other types of beings as well. But we have to be careful not to superimpose a contemporary thought or understanding or point of view onto historical figures who may not otherwise fit into this box that we're trying to put them in. So I can tell you, for example, the seriousness of this was spoken about in a sutra called Unlocking the Mysteries. The Buddha was being questioned by various bodhisattvas about the practice of the Dharma. And in that sutra, he states specifically to one questioner to be careful about sharing information, saying certain things, even if they are well-intentioned, though they were not things that I actually said. He said the downside of that is twofold. One, you've misstated what I've said, and so therefore your own understanding is incorrect. And then if you decide to share that with other people, you've also, even though it was well-intentioned, placed the incorrect understanding within their mind and in their consciousness. So, again, we want to caution uh, ourselves when we ask these types of questions, even though they're very interesting questions and uh, can certainly lead to a deeper understanding. Okay, enough with disclaimers. Let's jump into our little investigation here. So I want to first talk about a little bit, very briefly, about the Buddha's 
birth. So in a succinct manner, I'm going to say just this. The Buddha was not a deity. The Buddha was not a statue. We see statues of the Buddha and other Buddhas um, in everywhere from people's bathrooms to popular bars and pubs. Um, it's a travesty, but lest I digress. <laughs> uh, but the Buddha was a human being that was fully realized. At birth, he was called Siddhartha Gautama, and his place of birth was actually called Lubini, which is in the south part of Nepal. And he spent 29 years in Kapilavastu, uh, was born of royal lineage, lineage to King Sudadana, who was the head of the Sakya clan, and his mother was Queen Maya. Now, I can say that the Buddha's life, in terms of my uh, understanding of it and categorization of it, really has five main components or time periods. One is his birth. The second is his renunciation. The third would be the enlightenment experiment or experience, excuse me, and then teaching, and then finally his final nirvana. So these five categories of the Buddha's life are something that I myself kind of use as a guide to talk about his life. But we're not going to go into details about all of these specific time periods. What's relevant is that you understand that the Buddha was born into a royal family, very wealthy. Uh, the king Suddhodana, his father, uh, was well-educated, a warrior, and really loved by the people of his kingdom. It was later that Siddhartha would become the Buddha, and the Buddha attaching to him as a name after the Enlightenment experience. So, let's, with that background, dive a little bit deeper. So we have this being exceptional in many ways, uh, was a martial artist, skilled in horsemanship, archery, taught by the best scholars and teachers in the kingdom. But also, aside from this brilliance in mind and body, his character was exceptional. And that was noticed by everyone who was around him from the day he was born. So this is the person that we know as the Buddha. Now, I want to say a little bit about renunciation and the monastic lifestyle. So a renunciate, which loosely we translate as someone who uh, steps back from the hustle and bustle of life, if you will, to fulfill something deeper, something more meaningful in their life, rather than the pursuit of goods and services and uh, the things that life has to offer. And the renunciate tradition is not unique to the Buddhist practice. Uh, you will find nuns and monks and uh, sadhus and many other types of individuals who are renunciates in one way or another. 
But I think it's important to kind of just talk a little bit about the monastic lifestyle because you'll see some things that are interesting about that lifestyle that may shed some light on what we call minimalism today. So long before these uh, principles about minimalism evolved and became, you know, kind of made into a formal practice with various expressions, of course, the monastics, the monks, uh, including the Buddha, who lived first as a very wealthy young man, was married, had a son, and was next in line to take over the kingdom, to lead the kingdom. In fact, much to the chagrin of his father, he, during his renunciate time, said, no, thank you. I'm not interested in being the king. I'm not interested in running a kingdom. Uh, I'm interested in one thing. And that was his life. He was dedicated to that. So what are some of the things that the monastic lifestyle uh, looks like? Well, I can give you some examples. First of all, you start waking up perhaps around 4.30 or 5.30 in the morning. And again, this outline I'm giving you is more or less uh, the same at most monasteries, but they will vary, certainly, depending upon uh, certain practices and beliefs of that particular monastery. But generally, let's just say you're getting up early. <laughs> so no laziness in the monastic lifestyle. You're up at 4.30 or 5.30 in the morning, and depending upon which type of uh, temple or monastery it is, uh, you'll likely do some self-cleaning, cleaning yourself up, and then move into some type of movement of some sort, exercise, yoga. Uh, a number of different traditions are available. And again, it really depends on the particular lineage and their practice. What else would happen in this early morning time? Uh, after that, you would go into meditation. There would be chanting. Uh, after that, prayer, uh, and then perhaps by the time noon reaches you, uh, there is a meal. Now, in certain traditions, uh, this is the only meal of the day at about between 12 p.m. And, and 1 p.m., one meal. And the rest of the day, you will not be eating food. So this whole kind of new phenomenon about <laughs> Uh, intermittent fasting or alternatively time-restricted eating. Thousands of years back, this tradition of being mindful of not only what we consume, but how much we consume. And so in some lineages of Buddhism, like in the one in which I'm a lay disciple, vegetarianism is uh, required by the uh, monks and nuns to follow that. It's not required by lay people, but it is required by the monks and the nuns. And so this is another level of mindfulness about uh, how to live in juxtaposition to other beings as we're trying to deepen and develop our own consciousness. Myself, I follow a vegan diet, uh, and that's just my choice. 
The next thing that might happen in a typical day after the meal, the afternoon meal, or perhaps the only meal of the day, uh, would be to do some work. Working around the monastery, cleaning it up, lots of chores to do. Uh, Cleanliness is a really important part of the monastic lifestyle. And so each monk and nun might be assigned, depending upon their seniority, uh, certain things that they're responsible for doing, cooking, cleaning, uh, keeping uh, the actual structure clean. Uh, If there's a garden or some uh, grounds that need to be upkept, then you might be assigned to that as well. What else might happen during this time is work in the community. So visitors from, uh, let's say, the, the surrounding community might be coming onto the grounds to meet with various monks and, uh, monks and nuns to discuss various things. I know I had really enjoyed doing that before. Uh, it's really nice to uh, get the time and the insight of various monks and nuns about questions about the tradition, questions about the world. And I think it's interesting because of the very disciplined lifestyle that they live. And so one might assume that they are not so aware about what's happening in the world, so to speak. And while it may be true on some level that uh, some nuns and monks are not uh, in the know in terms of what's the latest and the greatest in the news, you'll be probably surprised that even though that may be the case with some of them, that their insights and their responses to what you may bring up with them regarding those things is actually quite profound. So as the day goes on, there might be uh, certainly time dedicated to studying the sutras. There might be lectures to attend. Certainly there's going to be more meditation. Uh, And if you're in a monastery and tradition where there is a uh, dinner, there will be a light meal in the evening. And again, the eating aspect of this, the nutritional aspect, is to help foster the practice of the lifestyle. So one thing that is kind of absent in at least what I've seen, most expressions of minimalism, is any sense of the nutritional or dietary uh, aspects playing a role in that. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But again, this is just kind of giving you some distinctions between the monastic lifestyle and maybe what we would call purely a minimalist lifestyle in contemporary times. So uh, after dinner, more meditation, perhaps some chanting, and then lights out by 10 p.m. So you're up early, you have activity all day, there's a small rest period during the day also, but pretty much every day your life is your practice. And so this is really important to understand that that level of commitment is aimed towards a certain goal, which we'll get into a little bit later. Now, Let's move on 
and talk a little bit about the specifics of the goals of the Dharma or Buddhism and minimalism. And again, we're focusing on this question, was the Buddha a minimalist? So, I'm not going to give a definition of minimalism. I've done that in a previous episode. You can check that out. Uh, it is the five tips uh, that be, help you begin your journey into minimalism. You can listen there. But I am going to talk about generally the goal of minimalism and of the Dharma or the teaching of the Buddha. Let's start with minimalism. Basically, it's learning to live with what you need and not in excess of that. I think that is a fairly generic and widespread, uh, widespreading uh, definition. And certainly, again, what that looks like, how that's expressed by the individual can vary. But generally speaking, learning to live with what you need and not in excess of that. So we can say that minimalism addresses a conventional aspect of life. That is the question of qualitatively how much. Again, I don't want to oversimplify, but I'm giving you these general guidelines so that then they can be massaged in such a way in which you can extrapolate deeper meaning. So I would say in summation about minimalism, it's more about decluttering of one's life on the level of phenomena. It's more about decluttering one's life on the level of phenomena. Now, what about the Dharma? What is its goal? Well, the goal of the Dharma, or the Buddhist teaching, is complete transcendence of all phenomena, of duality and self-identity. So it is addressing the ultimate aspect of life, or what I would call the what is, from the ground of consciousness or being with a capital B. So we can then say that the Dharma or Buddhism, in terms of its goal, has more to do with decluttering of our karmic makeup and our consciousness. So I think when we look at these goals of uh, minimalism as well as the Dharma, we can see that one, neither of them are the same. That is, they have different goals, clearly. I don't think that can be refuted. Next, we can see that uh, they address our existence on a completely different level. One is on the level of phenomena, and the other is on the level of consciousness and being. So, with that said, please reflect on that for a bit, and we'll be right back after this. And welcome back. I want to kind of wrap up my comments and thoughts about the monastic lifestyle and renunciation. Uh, 
And what I want to mention is that the Buddha, for approximately six years, engaged in extremely difficult uh, renunciate types of uh, practices. And so much so that uh, you will often see depictions of the Buddha with the ribs exposed because it's said that he was so extreme at one point that his ribs could be seen through his flesh. And so all of these aspects of living out in the bush, in the wild, literally, uh, long extended hours of fasting, long meditation, practices of various types of uh, yogic exercises, you name it. For six years, the Buddha traveled from various masters that were well known at the time to get to the heart of what he was seeking in life. And I may, in another podcast, talk about what his specific uh, goal was in life. But here, I just want you to understand that this renunciate lifestyle and the extremes to which one can go, the Buddha pretty much pushed that to the end. For those of you who may be interested in experiencing directly yourself the renunciate type of life, and I don't mean the extreme level at which uh, the Buddha went, but there is something that's called temple stay. And I would encourage you to research this, a temple stay. And these temple stays uh, range from one day up to a month. And what's wonderful is that you get to spend the entire day living as the monks and nuns do in the monastery. So that means you'll get up and you'll do exactly what they do for your entire stay. And recently, actually, this has become quite popular, Um, less so now because of the pandemic. But I imagine as soon as these uh, issues around the pandemic become non-existent or uh, less intense, that this will probably pick up again. So take a few moments, look online, look up Temple Stay, and you'll get a chance to experience the monastic lifestyle on your own. I actually think that anyone who's interested in the minimalist lifestyle would find such a stay very interesting. Because though you may not necessarily, and it's probably unlikely, though not impossible, unlikely that you will try to mimic that same schedule at home, it could give you some insight about what you want your expression of minimalism to look like within a community that practices uh, discipline every single day. So I encourage you to do that. So let's wrap this up. Let's come back full circle to our question. Was the Buddha a minimalist? What do you think? Well, let me tell you this. The meaning of Buddha is awakened one. And we mean this as a fully self-realized being, 
someone who has transcended personhood, duality, identities, and attachment to all phenomena. That's what a Buddha is. The next thing I'll say is that one may practice minimalism, but have no interest or understanding of Buddhism. They may even lack the capacity to practice Buddhism, given that the goals and aims of the Dharma and minimalism are not the same. They're not synonymous. But this could also mean that someone who practices Buddhism may not be practicing minimalism. Well, how so? And here's where we can kind of clear up this kind of misconception that they're synonymous or the same. Well, a person could be practicing Buddhism and own lots of cars, fancy homes and clothes and jewelry and all the finery that the world has to offer, but be unattached to those things. So that person would be certainly practicing Buddhism if in fact it were true that they had those things and were unattached to them. But the fact that they have all of those things is kind of counter to at least a more generic understanding and practice of minimalism. Uh, if you were walking up to a mansion that had servants and, you know, all of these fancy cars, etc., you probably would not think, oh, a minimalist lives here. If you go online and look at YouTube and various uh, other sources online, you'll probably see uh, a more extreme version in the opposite direction. So my point is, is that someone could be practicing Buddhism, but not be practicing minimalism. But likewise, we could say that one could be living a minimalist life, but be full of ego. Full of ego about how little possessions they actually have. So they may have few to no possessions. Again, you can look online and people will say, hey, everything I own is fits in this bag, <laughs> right? And personally, I think it's wonderful. I think that it's, uh, it's something that is a great experiment. It's probably not likely to last the rest of their life, but it is at least an attempt to discover something about themselves on a deep level and about the world and about existence through having few to no things. So a person could be practicing minimalism, but still have strong self-identity, a sense of ego, and be extremely attached to the few things that they do have. So it appears that whether we're talking about the Buddha himself or to the practitioners of Buddhism, to the monastic lifestyle. When we look at all this together and we look at minimalism, it would appear 
that it would be easier for minimalism to be incorporated into a practice of Buddhism or the Dharma, and not because the goal necessarily is the same for minimalism as it is the Dharma. We already discussed that. But because it seems as though that the aim and goal of transcendence of personhood and self-identity and attachment to phenomena would naturally lead to one having fewer things. Whereas one who is mostly interested or exclusively interested in the more conventional aspect of minimalism would not have any interest uh, in losing their ego necessarily. I'm not saying that wouldn't happen, but it doesn't have to be a goal. So there you have it. What do you think? Leave some comments. I'd love to hear what you think. I think this was a worthy exploration and I'm hoping that it has added some understanding for you regarding your own practice, whether you are someone who is a uh, Buddhist or someone who is a minimalist or someone like myself who practices and incorporates the principles of both, but admittedly on my side, primarily focused on the practice of the Dharma. Because my goals and my aim in this life are more focused on the ultimate aspects rather than the more conventional aspects. Until next time, peace and blessings.